Yes, welcome to No Spoilers, a podcast in which we walk through a film festival beat by beat, spoiling everything in our path. You have been warned. I'm your host, Nicholas Portress. I'm a Toronto actor, filmmaker, youtube.com slash novelty hat. We have a very special guest joining us today. He is a great lover of cinema. He is the single best Cineplex pre-show host of all time. He's also a formidable treatment writer, a filmmaker, an all-around great man. Returning champion Ben Gordon is live in the studio today. Ben, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. This intro, it makes me sound so amazing. I'm like, I want to meet this guy. I've never felt so beautifully introed before in my life that thank was, you thank that you that was that was amazing thank you, you so are much. amazing i mean it's just accurate well you know we've been, we've been friends for years and i'm just thrilled to i'm thrilled to be here and i'm thrilled to be here in person with you nick porches because i was here last for mi7 that's right the previous podcast the previous you're was, back was, to back are you serious yeah oh my god i'm back <laughs> your listeners are gonna get sick of me no that's impossible <laughs> uh you're too insightful you're too much fun it's great to be here absolutely now <laughs> This is a very special edition of No Spoilers, because usually we talk about one movie in great detail. Today, we're going to talk about a lot of movies in vague detail. (laughs) Um, And, you know, this is a spoiler podcast. We want to stay true to the brand. And these movies from the Toronto International Film Festival aren't even out yet in, I think, 100% of the cases. So... These are high-grade, radioactive spoilers. Like, people don't know what happens in these movies. Uh, And, you know, we're going to be spoiling them a bit. But to help the listener, who may or may not want all these upcoming releases spoiled, Ben, you've come up with an amazing system. What we're going to do is we're going to chat about the movie generally. We're going to keep it relatively spoiler-free. And then at the end, we're going to warn you. We're going to drop one real spoiler about the movie, and one fake spoiler. So, you know, you maybe maybe kind of don't know what's going to happen still. You won't know. You can go in blind, and if you want to just skip ahead, we're going to keep them brief. Uh, you can just use that skip button. Skip ahead 30 seconds. We'll probably be fine. We're going to keep them light and right. The first movie that I saw was The Royal Hotel. Ooh. Yes. Two women on a road trip, Julia Garner and Jessica Henwick, they, they run out of money. And they have to take a job in this bar in the middle of Australia, uh, run by Hugo Weaving, a very dank Hugo Weaving with a, a, a scraggly beard. And, you know, it's filled with unsavory characters. There's this threatening aura throughout the movie. Maybe something terrible is going to happen to these two women. Um, is this at a hotel? It is. It's at the Royal Hotel. That's what it's called. That yes. And there's a, there's a bar sort of on the ground level. Got it. Okay. And you can... It, it, the movie has a lot of... Um, sort of dry, arid texture to it. They're in the middle of nowhere. There's no water in the swimming pool. Mm. Um, You can really, you can sort of feel it in your bones. No water in the pool. I don't want my money back. (laughs) And they do too. See? They're not happy with the situation (laughs) at all. And, you know, it's it's sort of a slow boil. The tension simmers throughout. People generally thought this was a great movie. Now, I personally found it a bit boring. I needed a bit more to happen. I wanted um, these characters to shine a bit beyond just, oh no, I hope nothing bad happens to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the script wasn't quite there. There are a lot of scenes where it's clear that people are sort of improving dialogue just to fill space. Hugo Weaving, I found to be awesome. 
when isn't he? You know, we. I mean, maybe maybe when he was that kind of leprechaun guy in Cloud Atlas, yeah. he was a little off. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I kind of no. liked him though, still in that. But he also had like redemption in Cloud Atlas because <laughs> he true. he had other characters. Although I'm struggling to remember who they were. Who, they looked so different. They did, yeah, yeah. Um, but so he he really delivers. It sounds like kind yeah. of regardless of the script. It's you know this is not the the sort of headline of the movie. He's probably in like. 20 to 25 minutes of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, it was just interesting to see Hugo Weaving not playing, like, this high-concept sci-fi character. How long is his hair? Is he, like, really grimy? It's not super long, Uh but (laughs) it's definitely, like, unkempt, Mm. and, like, he could use a shave and a haircut, for sure. Gotcha. He's not doing too well. (laughs) And, you know, you get to hear him be all Aussie, and Mm. he doesn't have to hide it anymore. Right, he can just unleash the Aussiness. That was my favorite, that was my favorite thing about the movie. I'm gonna drop a fake spoiler and a real spoiler. Perfect. Okay? Uh, Okay, let's do it. So, one thing that I actually did appreciate about the movie, I don't think it was earned, but it has a very sharp ending. And that ending is one of the two following things. Okay. <laughs> Either yeah. the bar explodes. Holy shit. Or they drown Hugo Weaving in a jar that's used to preserve a snake carcass. One of those two things happens. I am intrigued by either ending. Especially because, have you seen Kitty Green's last film, The Assistant? I missed it. Okay, I'm curious, because it, it sounds to me like this is kind of an extension of what she's interested in, which is mm. this kind of, like, sort of um, uneasy sort of um, space that women exist in with men. Nice. Uh, and it sounds like she's she's really kind of carrying that forward here. But I've heard, kind of in some regards, similar criticisms where it feels like it felt really organic to what the assistant was doing. And here it sounds like there's kind of some padding, but either ending sounds like it kind of has a bang happening. So it, either ending totally has a bang. <laughs> that was number one. That How many movies one. did you see at Tiffany? I saw 13. Way? That's pretty rad. Yeah. Yourself. How many did you see? Yeah. So this was kind of a lighter year for me. Yeah. I had actually, uh, the last couple of years I've maybe done six or seven, but last year I was out of town for half of it. And then this year I was a little bit kind of in general, maybe unfairly down on the festival. It it just felt like they were, there were a lot of glaring omissions to me that were like, oh, these are movies that they would like instantly uh, nab if they could. It it, it had a bit of a B team lineup, if I'm being honest. Exactly. There was a, there was a period where I flirted with not even going. Me too, Nick. I almost didn't even go. And I'm, who would we be? (laughs) We would not be here. We wouldn't be doing this podcast. Uh, No regrets. (laughs) I actually think this was the best fest for me of the last four that's incredible yeah that's and great it's not the stiffest of competition i mean half of those were covidy ones covidy ones yeah and they didn't feel great right you know the the theater being half full was sold out mm-hmm. and getting tickets was a weird process and... did you do the 2021 like when it was almost completely virtual and, and i didn't even do 2020 right so like i can't even it would really be the best of the last three i ended up seeing about i think six or seven movies okay and um they ended up weirdly being kind of more experimental even some of the more like kind of mainstream ones which we'll get to later i'm doing air quotes on on a podcast and then also funnily enough i realized with my selections that they were almost all in different category or different programs Ah. which was not intentional i was like oh this is a platform this is a wavelength this is a special presentation yes this is a gala uh you know it was kind of uh this is a oh they changed contemporary world uh, cinema to centerpiece 
which means nothing. This is the other thing is like contemporary world cinema means something. Centerpiece is so it could be anything. It could be literally anything. Um, But what that did, I think what gave me, you know, I didn't see a ton of stuff this year, but it did give me kind of a nice sort of variety of things. And in general, sort of lean into this kind of more experimental space, almost unintentionally on my part, Hmm. uh, which means that um, the spoilers of no spoilers become a little challenging sometimes when a movie's kind of playing with narrative and stuff like that. No, these these (laughs) fake spoilers were hard to write. Mm. And I, I feel almost a little bit bad if you're listening to them that you know for sure that at least one of them is going to happen because right. in a way that in and of itself is a spoiler. But you signed up for this if you're listening. You, you you're listening to no comma spoilers. You, like you get you what want you asked for. You know, exactly. like like fuck off. Yeah, exactly. Honestly, exactly. I'm being completely <laughs> honest with the listener. <laughs> I like the uh, the, the hostility. <laughs> yeah, I really, really jumped there. Yeah. just quickly like it was a like a reflexive action. The next movie that I saw, this one is an overlap, so we can talk about this together. It's Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest. Ah, the yes. Zone. Yes, The Zone. It's been ten years since we've had a movie from Jonathan Glazer. He is not a, a prolific filmmaker in any way so when he puts something out there you know it's friggin special and he's like thought about it a lot he lives up to his name where he has his film in the oven for a long time in the kiln and then you know he's got to glaze it and he's got to finish it is it a stage name uh no (laughs) that's he took on a a moniker (laughs) that reflects his his practice i mean it would be in character i feel like he's a very like mysterious man who like really thinks about these things like these aesthetic aspects he's he's definitely a thoughtful guy and he's very um precise you know and i'm trying to remember did we see under the skin in 2013 together at the festival we might have i didn't see it at the festival okay okay so no he was there last yeah like 10 years ago but i remember running into you nick and you were like zone yeah so tell me about zone well world war ii the holocaust yeah heavy stuff you've probably heard of it There have already been a ton of great movies about Mm. these subjects. This movie brings a really unique perspective uh, and I think completely justifies its existence, its addition to that pantheon. And it is domestic life in a Nazi house just outside the Auschwitz concentration camp. So we're just sort of hearing and maybe barely seeing the horror of what is going on right across from this family. And we are experiencing these lives of luxury that they're that they're leading. They're they're benefiting directly from um, this horrific um, tragedy. It's sort of a perfect analog for any time you know we benefit from the suffering of others through systems of control through our own willful ignorance um you know that definitely applies to me to a lot of people in north america and i think what glazer's doing here is is bringing the starkest possible example of like human misery and and how you know there's there's like privilege and profit to be made from it and like as humans, we're always willing to overlook that in favor of our own stuff, mm-hmm. you know? Our own comfort, our own sort of just day-to-day kind of banal life lives that we lead. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting that, you know, this guy, this is this is a real guy. I didn't realize this, but uh, the SS commandant, Haas, oh um, was like a real Nazi commandant. And I think that they shot the movie 
uh, kilometers away from like the real house. Like they shot wow. it right nearby. Wow, wow. Um, it was in a derelict home that they sort of rebuilt. Mm. Um, but uh, this is also really interesting to me because it's a total deviation from the novel, from what I understand, by oh, Martin man. Amos, which has kind of multiple storylines and really focuses more on sort of a love story and also fictionalizes the commandant that is featured in this movie. So um, Glazer decided, I'm going to focus on the real guy. And I think that there's there's something a little bit more sort of charged about that. Mm. Um, and just knowing like, oh, you know, these were real people and, um, you know, yes, you know, he's doing his job and it's, it's a horrific job. He's, you know, having meetings about like, you know, what they're going to exterminate Jews with and yes. like, you know, what the chambers they're going to use and he, stuff. But yeah. Glazer does this amazing thing of like, he's looking at the sort of ruthless, cold efficiency of evil. Right. You know, that it's this like, it's, it's this sometimes a very sterile thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not mustache twirly. It's not, you know, this necessarily passionate, hateful act. It's like, well, how can we organize mm-hmm. genocide? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's deeply disturbing. Mm. Um, but it's like an aspect of, of evil that I think is like worth considering that it's, it's not always going to like feel like this huge gaping, like, pit of your stomach heart thing you know it's like we can participate in or be near these horrible things and they don't outright feel like these alarm bells you know right it's such a kind of dissonant movie in in every way the the music is used very sparsely by michael levy and Mm -hmm. is um almost like undescribable to me it ha- it's it's kind of this weird sort of like sensorial feeling but it's mm. like it's not melodic at all um uh and used very sparsely through the movie um the way that glazer films it is uh incredibly non-intrusive so mm-hmm. he hit a bunch of cameras the family's sort of living their day-to-day life lives uh and so you know the quality of sort of the cinematography is almost like kind of weirdly like not low res, but it has kind of a weird, like it almost looks like it was shot on like previous generation, like uh. digital cameras or something. Yeah. And part of that is out of necessity because he wants to hide um, these cameras as much as possible and sort of let these actors that are portraying this family sort of just go about their lives sort of in the space. And um, it does create this very sort of neutral Hmm. viewpoint on behalf of of Glazer, the filmmaker, where there's, you know, there's no judgment. But what's happening is and the way he would describe it, I think, is I think he described it as uh, uh, there's a movie. There's two movies. There's the movie you're seeing and there's the movie you're hearing. And so, like you said, you're constantly sort of hearing atrocity you're hearing gunfire you're hearing screams occasionally yes um the the sound design of this movie is extraordinary oh yeah i mean there are like three-dimensional stories occurring Mm -hmm. in you know whatever you know hidden channel in Mm. the theater and you're sort of left to your own devices about okay what what was that you know what's going on over there and it's complete. It's fully realized. This is not like some stock library or like a random scream. It feels, it feels like it's coming from a real thing. Mm-hmm. You know, totally. And also, when you describe how unsettling it is, I've never really experienced this with a, with a movie, or if I have, it's incredibly rare. Which is that 
the more banal the imagery or idyllic or serene, you mm. know, you have uh, the commandment's wife with a baby and she's leaning the baby over and the baby's kind of playing with a flower. Uh, the more stomach churning it is, the more mm. disturbing it is, the less disturbing the visuals mm-hmm. because you know what's going on, like you said, around the corner or over the wall. Um, and so it creates this very destabilizing feeling. Totally. Um, and what I loved overall about Zone of Interest was uh, it really made me think a lot about um, Holocaust representation in cinema or film and TV. Um, you know, there's a lot of debate about what's appropriate, what's not. Mm. You know, what do we show? What do we not? And and I think that there's a lot of validity with um, with multiple ways of doing it. You know, I remember Michael Haneke saying that he found uh, Schindler's List to be really exploitative because mm. of the way that it showed, you know, the, the Jews being gassed in the chambers and right. that, you know, and, and how, or that, you know, there's kind of a misdirect with that scene in the movie. Uh, and, um, you know, but for Spielberg, there's a deep personal connection to this, obviously. And this is a story that he needed to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, I think that you can do it with sort of a pure straightforward narrative. I think you can do it in ways that are more experimental. I think as long as it's really approaching it from a place of, of honesty and of truth, uh, and of integrity, um, then I think it, you know, it is something worth documenting. I mean, even Shoah, right. Is another example where it's just pure testimony from survivors. Um, and it's, it's amazing to have that documented record. This is an approach I've never seen. And my initial concern was, is it going to, is it going to kind of supersede its approach? Like, is it going to be more than just this idea of, Oh, you know, here's this kind of, um, tranquil idyllic um space this home and then here's this horrific thing happening around the corner is there more than that um you know i don't know necessarily that it goes way beyond that conceptually mm-hmm. but it nails that execution and it and it does it in a way like you describe nick of it being um very reflective of not just the holocaust but of uh passivity and how easy it is to be um uh in proximity to horrific or evil things Mm -hmm. and, um, just to not be, um, engaged in it, you know? And so it's a really thought provoking movie. I loved it. It was probably the best thing I saw. Yeah. It's something that unfortunately echoes throughout time. I mean, you know, we have situations in the States obviously where it's like, we don't want to learn about our past. We don't want to. And it's like, no, you have to be aware of this stuff in order to, you know, perhaps move into a better world. Mm -hmm. But, um, let's drop, <laughs> fuck. That's a good transition. I'm amazed like that it. we like made it through this. This is a tough one to talk about. Um, I thought this was the best of the festival mm-hmm. for me. Uh, and, uh, you know, five stars. Let's drop some big spoilers let's about it. the zone of interest. So here, here are my two. So the end of the movie mm-hmm. is we cut to the present and look inside a Holocaust museum, which is being cleaned and maintained with a similar level of organized efficiency that enabled the unspeakable tragedy of the Holocaust, point being, at least my read of it, that there is hope, goodness and truth can be just as powerful as evil. That sounds like something you may have just made up. I don't know. It could be a fake spoiler. (laughs) It's probably fake. Here's the other one. Okay, I know that that sounded real, but check this out. Okay. Here's the second one. Mm. We cut to the present day, and there's a sort of meta mirror image of us, the movie theater audience, quietly watching this movie. 
And my read of it is that Glazer is trying to incite real action in the present and that, you know, sitting still and just absorbing this movie isn't enough. Right, right. That there's some sort of audience complicity happening, maybe, just by even us witnessing this. Just by silently watching. Interesting. Yeah. Right. That could that very well could be how this movie ends. Did you write some spoilers for this? Film? For this one, I you know, I um well, you know, I do remember the scene uh, or the multiple scenes that are shot with this sort of infrared photography, mm. you know, and they have this uh um very unusual kind of look to it where it's almost like you're looking at a film negative uh, mm-hmm. and you're seeing uh, one of the characters kind of out and uh, out and about at night. Yeah. Um, you know, that could be, that could be real, you know, and what, what also could be real, yeah. but also might be fake is that this movie actually cuts to uh, the future uh, yeah. to uh, 2057. Uh, yep. And uh, we cut to uh, a very sort of state of the art Holocaust library. Yes. And we see uh, students um, and, uh, you know, various people in the library sort of, you know, looking at books and stuff. And one, one removes the book, uh, The Zone of Interest by Martin Amos, and they, and they sit down and they open it. And that's the end of the movie. And it sort of enables this loop. That's what I can... kind of read into. It was a cyclical thing. I think, yeah. I think probably the Blu-ray will have a, an option where you can just loop the movie over and over. Oh, like a oh, from that ending. That's genius. Yeah, I, I think I, I I would pick it up just for that. And which obviously mirrors the you know historical uh, loop that right. we sometimes find ourselves in of, or always find ourselves in of you know injustice. And that, that's a very very astute read. Thank you. <laughs> the next movie I saw was How to Have Sex. Whoa. Okay. What did you <clears throat> learn? I learned so much. Oh man, you got I I got my notebook out. Uh, <laughs> I'm was... gonna write this very very diligently. <laughs> There were a couple of movies that were kind of fun to get into line for because the TIFF volunteers had to sort of, I was, I was like uh, looking for the lineup and they were like, how to have sex. Mm. And I was like, yes. I think our lives would be so much easier if, you know, when we were younger, we were, we could just get into a line of someone saying that and then we could just learn. I know. If only this had happened 20 years earlier for me, maybe I wouldn't be the mess that I am today. (laughs) Uh, Tell me about How to Have Sex, Nick. Well, How to Have Sex uh, is a well-realized, visceral depiction of teens going on spring break, one of whom, unfortunately, is sexually assaulted. Oh, God. Um, and this this movie really got under my skin. I think it's, it's a very real-feeling depiction of something that, unfortunately, happens uh, all the time. Um, and I think it's an important movie uh, for, for young people to see, um, to understand, you know, boundaries and what's okay, what's not. There have been a lot of comparisons, weirdly enough, to Spring Breakers. Well, you uh, did, uh, maybe because of the Spring Break element. There's definitely spring the Spring Break, break element, and it's like, it's, it's like not an appealing look mm-hmm. at Spring Break and teen sexuality, and like it's very disgusting at times. It sounds a lot heavier, though, in terms of its subject matter. It, it's a lot more, I suppose, relative to Spring Breakers, it's a lot more muted and like objective. Mm. Um, although I, I, it is also super subjective in that it is really from the perspective of this woman. Thinking about Harmony Corinne, I thought there was a bit more in common with kids, actually. Because hmm. kids is also this very um, sort of naturalistic, it almost feels like a documentary. If I had to draw a comparison, I think that's what we're looking at. It's like, you're not sure how much of this was even scripted. It feels so real. Mm. Um 
And I saw kids uh, when I was a lot younger. When th- you were a kid, maybe. <laughs> I saw it when I was eight years old. Wow. Because <laughs> you saw the title and you were like, this is for this is a movie <laughs> mommy, for me. Mommy, let me watch this. <laughs> yeah. I saw it when I was <laughs> ready to see it. Right. But, you know, I was still a lot younger. Mm. And, um, you know, kids also features uh, some pretty heavy depictions of rape and, you know, not not great stuff. Um I think that if I saw How to Have Sex when I was that age, it would probably have um, a greater impact on me as it stands. Uh, I think it's a really visceral, uh, sort of great, uh, gets-under-your-skin depiction, but I don't know if it's really reinventing the wheel. I think Mm. it's very good uh, at what it's doing, Um, and I think people who see it, you know, at the right time, uh, it's probably going to have a much bigger impact on them. Mm. So I don't know if I'm like necessarily the perfect audience. It for might cater it. to like a younger crowd, maybe, or some people who are just dipping their toes into stuff that's a little more provocative. Yeah, and, yeah. And I give I I give it points. Yeah, uh, I think it has a ton of merit. Mm. Uh, I just personally, maybe I would go to kids first mm-hmm. uh, if I wanted to dip my toe into that sort of thing. Um, I'm going to drop some big spoilers here. Oh, here we go. I didn't see this one, so I have no idea. There's a couple of scenes in this movie okay. with silly jokes. Hmm. The first-time director, Molly Manning Walker, said that she added them as last-second reshoots because she didn't want the whole thing to be, you know, super dour. Right. And you needed that sort of injection of humor. Hmm. So I'm going to tell you two jokes. Okay. One of which is in the movie. <laughs> okay. Okay? Yeah. First joke. Why do you never see pigs hiding in trees? Why? Because they're pretty good at it. It's, it's pretty good. That's a good joke. I like that. What's brown and sounds <laughs> like a bell? What's that? What? What? Dung. Oh, that's pretty good, too. Yep. I have Either no idea those. which one. I have no idea Watch which out. one is One real. of those is in the movie. <laughs> okay. When I see it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find out, and it will be revelatory mm. for me. I think it might be as good a, a time as any, Nick, to mention the Harmony Corinne movie I saw. Yes. Because you just mentioned Harmony Corinne oh, as the writer of Kish. Yes. So, And this was a movie that I believe you were um, scheduled to see, and then you read some reviews coming out of Venice, I think, and you were uh, like... Oh, boy. <laughs> I saw a 15-second clip. So, it was the clip. Yes. Mm. Uh, a friend of mine forwarded me a, a little scene clip. I don't know how this person got a hold of it, but it was a 15-second clip, and I just was like, I don't I don't know if I can do this. If I can stomach it. I yeah. mean, the big thing about uh, this movie, Harmony Corinne's uh, newest film, Agro Drift, and mm. Drift is spelled with a one. The Drift. I is a one. Mm-hmm. Agro Drift. Why wasn't uh, the aggro spelled with a zero? See, that I feel like that would have been great. Yeah. I, I feel like that feels more aligned with what kind of the vibe of the movie, hmm. which is a very, um, you know, experimental... Um, I guess the place to start is that Harmony Corinne, I think, is getting very bored with the state of cinema. And I think a lot of people are. They're kind of like man, we're getting a lot of sort of franchise garbage or just like, you know, it's hard to find stuff that feels like kind of genuinely provocative and exciting, you know, and uh, whether I agree with him or not with his sort of direction is almost kind of irrelevant, um, which is that he was like, I am, what am I excited about? Well, I'm excited about TikTok videos. You know, he has a daughter who I'm sure is probably like into TikTok and social media and video games. And I think he was really compelled by this kind of um uh the storytelling that he was seeing in gaming 
And um, so he's made the results of this is aggro drift. It's like an 80 ish minute movie. That's all shot with infrared cameras. Mm. Um, Good transition from zone of interest. Right. Exactly. Uh, Into, you know, this, so it's very, unlike zone of interest, this is a very sort of like, hyper stylized colorful you know it's all teals and reds and oranges and yellows and it's you know hard to kind of make out anybody's faces um it has a very bone simple narrative there is a narrative in it Hmm. Uh, it's about a hitman named Bo, i believe and Bo is a hitman with a job and he's got a guy he has to kill Hmm. but he's also got a a loving wife and family at home he's always talking about his loving wife and and family and how he's doing this for them but he doesn't want them to see the violence it's very cliched dialogue almost by design um, and he has to, uh, kill another guy and he's given this mission in a very kind of grand theft auto way. Okay. Uh, you know, he's riding around on boats. Uh, he meets Travis Scott who has a snake, uh, tongue that kind of like flickers in and out. Mm. Um, the, the coolest part to me is that mm. he's got a big demon that sometimes appears over him in the sky and the demon almost is... Uh, it's implied that he's kind of being controlled by this demon. Is it the like a, the CG kind of demon? Yeah, so okay. it's a big CGI demon. And because of the the nature of the infrared cameras, what you're seeing is kind of um, like sometimes what will look like tattoos on people's skin uh, are actually, uh, you know, you're almost looking through them and you're seeing what looks to be like uh, almost like machinery that's inside or like mechanical wiring in their bodies. Like people don't look real. Nothing looks real. It's in this hallucinogenic kind of dream space. Okay. Um, and so <laughs> this movie has some of the most divisive reactions I think I've ever seen a movie get. If you go on the letterbox page, you're going to see a lot of fours and a lot of half stars and ones. Mm-hmm. And that was what excited me about the movie. And I went into it very generous because Harmony Corinne, we mentioned Spring Breakers. I think that movie is brilliant. Or at least yeah. I did when I saw it when it came out. It's been I, a while. It's yeah. been a long time. But I was um, really struck by that movie and sort of how he, it, it was almost like he kind of stealth released this like very liberating movie to me for that cast, this kind of like Disney channel cast. Right. And you know, it's a movie where it looks like they're going to be in a lot of danger and then they kind of end up having a lot of agency and and power. Mm. Um, And um, I found that movie to be kind of like genuinely daring and thrilling. And Gummo, I think is also like a really singular movie. So he's, delivered the goods for me a lot yeah. um i haven't seen trash humpers yet but i imagine that this that agro drift is more along those lines or it's very experimental right um the the detractors of agro drift would tell you that it's nothing but a troll job that he's basically just kind of fucking with you hmm. he doesn't sorry nick's mom i apologize <laughs> that he's messing with you and uh <laughs> uh you know that that there's really nothing here uh besides like just trying to kind of like uh, annoy you and, and, and bother you, you know? And I honestly just didn't get that from this movie. I think that there is a genuine, um, sense of curiosity and discovery that's driving him with this technology, uh, and shooting with these infrared cameras. What I wouldn't necessarily say is that this movie is really pushing cinema into exciting new directions. (laughs) It's, you know, it's an experimental film. Sure. That's what it is. Sure. Uh, and it's, it's operating sort of in that space. And, I, I think one of my, my favorite Harmony Corinne quotes, and I love Harmony Corinne, the guy, yeah. you know, yeah, he's, he's really an interesting guy. He's, he's not afraid. And I, I love, he talks about like 
we're so obsessed with things working and succeeding. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why why can't we just have things that don't work? You know, right. why, why can't we put out movies that aren't, you know, A plus bulletproof, you know, concepts and screenplays and let's let's fuck around. Le- you know? Yeah. There and that I think that that philosophy is like genuinely very much a part of this. Now, yeah. whether you're gonna get anything out of it, it's it's hard to say, you know. Mm-hmm. You might just be really annoyed by it you know it it does it is quite a misogynistic script you know there's like he's a hitman he's got his wife you know people are there's like strippers and people calling (gasps) people bitches you know it's like it's i know it's got a lot of that kind of stuff and i can't you know i'm not going to try to like defend that but i think that there's something there is something really fascinating about, especially seeing it in a theater. And I have no idea how Agrodrift is going to get released. It's part of this new collective that he started called Edge Lord, which is another really irritating thing. Um, you know, and another thing that makes people probably say, "Well, this is just a big troll job, right?" right. Oh, okay, Edge Lord's making a movie. Um, <laughs> but I, but seeing it in a theater definitely had a weird sort of like um, kind of. Uh, hallucinatory, almost psychedelic effect. Okay. And uh, I think that if you can kind of look past the limitations of maybe the script and the narrative, that you are going to have just a purely sort of visual, um, worthwhile experience with it. So I, I would say give Agro Drift a chance if you're willing to get a little bit, a uh, little crazy. Will it work on home video? That's a great question. I don't think it would have the same impact for me in home video. See it in a theater. I think if you can see it, if it gets a theatrical release, I think it's worth seeing in a theater if you're curious about it. Sure. Now, I have a couple spoilers here for you, Drew. So you might be excited to learn that every I in the movie is pronounced like a numerical one, like in the title. Which so t- wait, when a character is saying like I want to go eat some food, they yeah, say yeah. one want to go eat some food. Exactly. Okay. That's exactly okay. what happens. And you know, it took a little getting used to. Yeah. Almost like if you're reading like Anthony Burgess's a clockwork orange and you're like, I don't understand this jargon at all. Yeah. But by the end it just totally sounds like fluid language. It, it was starts, kinda like that. It starts to feel weird to hear I after the movie's over. Yeah, I, I had to kind of readjust my own, yeah. you know, perceptions of the English language, yes. which is crazy. Uh, you know, and then the other thing is that, you know, the, the there's stars in the sky in the movie, and uh, uh, they're sometimes uh, described as being made of fudge. Wow. Yeah, which I've never thought about stars being made of fudge. I but wish I didn't know that going in. Well, I might be making that up. I don't know. <laughs> You'll right. have to see You're when right. you see Harmony Corinne's Agro Drift. This is a perfect system that you've created, Ben. <laughs> okay. People's Choice winner, American Fiction. Wow. This is Cord Jefferson, first-time director, long-time writer on uh, lots, of, lots of good stuff like Succession. And it's an adaptation of the novel Erasure by Percival Everett. Uh, and it is a satire about the state of African-American storytelling. It's very funny mm-hmm. about things that are very tough to be funny about. I It was kind of wild and refreshing to experience these like belly laughs about, you know, some things that maybe we're not supposed to laugh at. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about the sort of idea that in fiction, sometimes there are black writers who are using this sort of stereotypical idea of a suffering black character living on the fringes of society rather than writing about their own real experience and sort of, you know, reinforcing uh, this stereotypical idea of what uh, constitutes African-American drama. 
I suppose. Mm. Um, and, and also the zeitgeist's sort of rampant, unquenchable hunger for these kinds of stories. Um, so Jeffrey Wright, uh, who is fantastic. I love Jeffrey Wright. Love Jeffrey I just got to say, I love the guy. He gets to step into the spotlight and it feels right. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> he's a professor and an occasional author. He writes a fake book mm. as a fake person, uh, this sort of ex-convict. And he writes it sort of as a joke. It's like a parody of these books that he's seeing that are doing so well. And he kind of pulls a bit of a the producers because people go crazy for this book that, you know, he just thought was this dumb idea. Cord Jefferson uh, has done some stuff here that can be underrated. In adapting a funny book, he's made all the jokes land. I don't think he's like put too much of a spin on it. Um, he's just sort of presenting the thing as is, and it feels like a very clean sort of one-to-one, these are the ideas from the novel. And uh, I generally had a good time with it, but I also wanted it to be more than just a filmed adaptation of a novel. Hmm. And I think at the end of the day, for me, it did feel a little dry overall. It did feel a bit, this is the book. You know, I, I'm very happy that this movie won the People's Choice. I think, like, I don't want, you know, the boy and the heron winning People's Choice. I don't want uh, something that's already destined to be successful to win. I think it's awesome that this movie that didn't have a still when it came to TIFF, you mm-hmm. know, it was like a last second edition. And now people are talking about it and it's exciting and it's original. Um, so I'm, I'm thrilled for it and it's now, uh, altered trajectory from, from winning that, that prize. How, um, biting would you say the satire in the movie is, especially because, um, I think Jojo Rabbit in 2019 won the people's choice award uh, and that was presented as a satire. And I think that the kind of the, the sort of the biggest issue I have with that movie is that it feels a little toothless. Like it goes down so hmm. easy and maybe it's just because of what the subject matter is and how it deals with it, that it's kind of a warm hug of a movie. Yeah. Um, how much of like a warm hug is American fiction ultimately or sort of um, like kind of like pleasing to an audience is it or how angry is it is is what i'm curious about well i think that is really the great virtue of it is Mm -hmm. is that uh it is really wading into some dangerous territory okay (laughs) there's definitely room to feel offended Mm -hmm. by this idea that like black authors should stick to their lived experience and not explore uh, you know, this very real element of society that, you know, revolves around um, black misery, I suppose. Mm-hmm. As a culture, we are hungry for those stories. Mm-hmm. And we need to think about that and question it. And like, for that to be brought up in such a like, honest and funny way, I think that's a really tough hoop to jump through. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really take my hat off to the movie for doing that and for not feeling like it is kind of child's play. Like, I think these are like really tricky subjects mm-hmm. and I, I really think it threads that needle in a way that almost makes it look easy. Mm. I would say better than Jojo Rabbit in that respect, mm-hmm. for sure. Maybe it's time to drop some spoilers. Let's drop them. Jeffrey Wright reveals <laughs> that he's not actually this fake character that he invented to write the novel. Okay. Okay. Or Jeffrey Wright inadvertently becomes 
the fake character. I can't wait to find out. Yeah. Up next, Dream Scenario, which we saw together. We saw this together at the Scotiabank Theater, Nick, and it was great. You had a seat right next to you. I got to sit. We got to enjoy a TIFF movie together, which I haven't been able to do in so long. And this was the one that I got off Reddit. I got a last second ticket off of Reddit slash TIFF tickets, which great Reddit if you're looking to to buy a a ticket. You gotta you gotta become obsessed with it and Mm -hmm. like refresh it every five seconds. Exactly. But sometimes you get a free ticket. Sometimes you get you know a face value to something awesome mm-hmm. uh sometimes heavily discounted so uh shout out to <laughs> reddit slash tip tickets okay so nick cage we love him he's a professor mm-hmm. he's very uncomfortable in his own skin he is not charismatic in any way he's bald he's got a beard he's got little glasses sometimes it's, i think yeah it's like it's the closest <laughs> nick cage has come to playing charlie kaufman again mm-hmm. and i don't understand why he's so good at it like it's the opposite of who nick cage is nick Mm. cage is a showboat nick cage is like a showman mr charisma exactly it's just because he's just such a fantastic actor yeah i think he's just so good at and he's very versatile so yeah he's he's hilarious in this movie and and this this professor starts showing up in everyone's dreams uh and initially his presence is quite passive he's just there yeah which is very true to his personality because he just kind of lives his life he teaches these boring classes he talks about writing a book but he doesn't actually write it and uh that's that's kind of him he's just sort of stuck right uh so his manifestation people's dreams uh very much lines up with that he's just there but everyone's noticing him great premise too yeah like what if everybody's dreaming this normal guy yeah yeah uh, and you know, it becomes a bit of a circus and uh, chaos ensues. <laughs> gets a little crazy. Yeah, it's a little uncomfortable uh, at times, but uh, you know. Well, what happens, Nick? He starts to, I mean, I don't know if we want to go there or not, but you know, let's things not go too far. Sh- we won't yeah. go too far, yeah. but things shift a little bit in yeah. terms of how people dream about him, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And uh, might have a negative impact on him, might have a negative impact on him. And then yeah. it's like, well, at what cost did this fame come to me? Yes, you know? and I, you know, I love movies that that really examine the nature of fame and the emptiness of fame, and I think this is kind of a perfect scenario to <laughs> look at, like, fame that is acquired through absolutely no fault of your own. Like, mm-hmm. you start showing up in people's dreams, you're not even doing anything in their dreams. Uh, it's just this unexplainable phenomenon, and now suddenly you're this like character that everyone's curious about um and so you know completely unearned mm-hmm. what what is fame just by itself you know right yeah stripped of any sort of um like action towards achieving it you totally. know You're or just... even or even infamy or you mm-hmm. know just literally you've done nothing right <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, we talked about it a little bit. Um, the movie's priorities definitely shift quite a bit, I think, mm-hmm. in terms of like what it's about. Yes. And it becomes less about sort of the idea of dreaming or the more kind of psychological idea of like people sharing these, you know, this guy in his in their collective dreams. Right. Yeah. Um, and I know for me, I started to feel and the director also did a little Q&A at the screening we were at. And it felt like this kind of impetus for um him working on this project and writing this script, like it had real, almost nothing to do with dreaming. Mm. It was kind of more about the idea of fame and the idea of sort of like, uh, well, it becomes a cancel culture movie, if that's okay to say. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So I think that that idea 
um, was a, a little bit more of a priority for him in terms mm-hmm. of like, oh, this feels like something I can kind of graft this and, and, and idea onto. Weirdly, that felt like sort of the least developed part of it yes. to me. I think it's the weakest third of the movie by quite a bit. Yes, and it's it's unfortunate. You know, I, I think this movie has a lot of distinct sort of acts, mm-hmm. and the ones towards the end are the weakest. Yeah. Um, I think that the very end mm-hmm. is great. Mm-hmm. I uh, said in my Letterboxd review that I wish it had just sort of taken a more direct route, maybe sidestepped a couple of those lesser bits mm. and just gotten there quicker. Um, because for me, I was enthralled. I found this really funny, really fun. Lots of just great ideas. Um, and some, some hiccups, some disjointedness towards the end, but overall this was one of my favorites. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely had a good time. I was, I loved the premise of it. I loved cage in the movie. I think it's like people every couple years will be like, this is the strongest cage performance in years. (laughs) Yeah. And it's hard to say because, you know, I I don't know if you saw pig, but he's incredible in pig. Yeah. Uh, he is really good in Mandy kind of doing his cage thing here. He's like, you said kind of more along the lines of adaptation. Mm. definitely i think one of his strongest roles that he's had in years and i think one of the best sort of uh reasons to check this movie out um for me i wished it was almost a little bit more operating in kind of an abstract like dream driven space Mm -hmm. uh it's it's a very literal movie and it's you know and it is kind of operating in a satirical space the way that american fiction i'm guessing is Mm. um but uh to me i thought it could get a little weirder and a little wilder but Mm -hmm. i enjoyed it and i'm glad i saw it yeah. Yeah. I think there definitely was room. It's sort of like after I saw Inception, I was like, but couldn't there have been, you know, something a little bit crazier? Right. Yeah. yeah. I have some spoilers for this as well, so we might have a bunch for this one. Okay, great. Yeah. Let's <laughs> drop all of our spoilers, real and fake. Okay. It turns out, this was shocking to me, and I, I'm. it's a pleasure to tell the audience this, that the whole movie is actually a dream mm-hmm. of the acclaimed actor Nicolas Cage, that there's a meta element to the movie and that the entire movie is actually kind of set in this dream environment. They, I was shocked by that. They don't spell it out, but no. there is a reading of this where it's sort of a backdoor sequel to um, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Right, right, which he yeah. just made. Yeah, yeah, it was fascinating. Very interesting. This shocked me too. Uh, Cage wears the suit from Stop Making Sense in the movie. He wears the big suit. And I'm. this is also a great lead into another movie that I saw that we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, <laughs> yes. It may have been the festival of Stop Making Sense. It could have been. I couldn't believe that he was wearing the big suit from Stop Making Sense. I was shocked. Yeah. Uh, so my big spoilers are, number one, the dreams of Nick Cage start to get a little eatable. And suddenly... Nick Cage is having sex with everyone's dad. <laughs> this was it's really disturbing. Yeah, we we looked at each other a few times during some of these sequences yeah. and we were like, should we get out of here? Like this is a little much. And and it's just barely portrayed in a way where like I know the movie's going to get an R rating mm. and like but it's so close to getting an NC-17. It really pushes the line. It is a hard R yeah. uh, movie. It's really disturbing for everyone and it basically costs him everything. Right. <laughs> Second spoiler, Nick Cage, at one point, is hunted for sport. Right, he's hunted for sport in the movie. Mm-hmm. 
Can you believe that? I don't know if I've ever seen Nick Cage hunted for sport in a movie before. He is the most dangerous game. Mm. I'll be real quick with yeah. Stop Making Sense. Because yeah. I, I saw it, I tried, this is the one ticket I could not get at all. It was impossible. Uh, the band reunited. They don't like each other. They haven't been in a room together in like 30 years. Um, but, you know, this movie came out in 1984. It's known as one of the greatest concert films of all time, I think rightfully so. I saw it again yesterday uh, at the IMAX, uh, which is a fake IMAX at Young and Dundas in Toronto. IMAX. It's not a real, it's a LIMAX. But the mix, the reason to see this movie in theaters, it's out now, is that the mix, the new mix and the new restoration is incredible. Jerry Harrison from the band was part of the remastering process they've completely remixed the movie it sounds new it looks new it has an immediacy on the size of that screen like it's a little bit intense to be mm. honest mm. um but it's an incredible movie spoilers for a concert movie stop making sense um you know a beach ball is hit in the air at one point by an audience member and it never lands <gasps> You never Ever? see it land. Yeah, you don't see it's it land. It's still up there. It's somewhere. It's hovering somewhere in the uh, the theater in L.A. that How they shot they this movie in. How explain that? It's, uh, it's never explained. Wow. It's up for you to decide. Uh, but this was the other shocking thing to me about this movie, Nick, was that David Byrne actually wears the outfit that Nick Cage wears in Dream Scenario in this movie. Do you think they were trying to set up Dream Scenario? I do. So, so I was like, and I couldn't believe this because this movie was made in 1984. Yeah. And he's dressed like Nick Cage in the movie for like one song, huh. you know? Because, um, you know, he wears the big suit and everything. But what was amazing was like somehow that they kind of, it was almost like a prophetic move by Demi and the band was like, we're going to dress this guy up like Cage. And it's almost like kind of like these films are honoring each other in a way. That's beautiful. So, you know, uh, besides Zone of Interest, Stop Making Sense from 1984, <laughs> best movie I saw at the festival, but I almost don't want to count it. There you go. Boy Kills World. What was this one? So this is a big old action movie set in this big old fake dystopian world. We have Boy, played mm -hmm. by Bill Skarsgård, who... <laughs> I know this... Maybe I'm being premature, but I think he's my favorite of the three... Skarsgård actors. Wow, I really okay. like Bill Skarsgård. He's great. I, he just pops for me. I, I don't think he's, like, gotten the role that, like, will define him quite yet. I know mm. Pennywise is quite iconic, but he's still, you know, hiding under some layers mm. there. But I just I just really like Bill Skarsgård. More than Stalin, even? I know. I, I feel bad saying it, because nope. I'm not I'm not saying that <laughs> Stalin, like, Stalin's amazing. Right. You're not trying to knock Stalin. It's just Bill no. might be your fave. If I had to rank them. Okay. They're like my children, these yeah. stars cards. <laughs> you love them but all. if I had to rank them. Um, anywho, he needs to kill the brutal dictator woman uh, who runs this dystopian society, and he has to get to her through these various henchmen slash bosses. It's almost structured like a video game. Um, I've heard some very apt comparisons to Deadpool. You know, Boy is a mute character. He doesn't speak, but he comments on a lot of things uh, through, through voiceover. voiceover yes. Oh. And the voiceover just sounds so strange. It's almost <laughs> like a DVD commentary track or something. It's just, it's not well integrated. It kind of sounds like it's in another movie. It doesn't feel like he's thinking these thoughts in this environment. It's like in a... You feel like he's in a studio somewhere recording it. Um, it's not particularly funny, uh, but it's going for that vibe of like, this is an action movie. I'm going to kind of smarmy. It sounds like a little bit, a yeah. little bit. You know, the story, the characters, the jokes of this movie are not very good. I think little boys might love it because it's it's a very sort of grimy, you know, violent action heavy movie no little boy is going to be allowed to see this movie 
unless they, they without s- his mommy well, or daddy, w- without his mommy or daddy, or if they you know find it on Netflix while mommy and daddy are away or mm-hmm. something like that. It's not meant for child consumption, but I think child consumption might be like the the greatest possibility for it to really land. The pure aesthetic of the movie really goes a long way. This thing is made with a lot of care. There's a lot of crazy camera moves and beautiful textures. And, uh, you know, none of it looks like it was just sort of slapped together at the last second. It it really, it really has a vibe. um, And that carried me through a lot of it. You know, I I gave it two stars for that. Okay. uh, But I would not really recommend this movie at all. Lower tier for you for this year's festival, it sounds like. Here's a couple spoilers. Boy turns out to be related to a lot of the other characters, which makes killing them a whole lot tougher, in theory. That is an interesting... See, that is interesting to me. They were all related the whole time. Well, yeah. (laughs) Spoiler number two. Boy literally kills world. (laughs) There is nothing left at the the end of this movie except boy. Boy. It's it's all black. There's just Bill Skarsgård. And I'm not necessarily mad about a universe that is just Bill Skarsgård. You, because you like him. He's your favorite Skarsgård. I do. Let's get rid of everything else. Is his real name, is his name, is he called Boy in the movie? I honestly don't know. But that's what uh, you call I've him. I've forgotten. His, but he's I, Boy. I call him Boy. It doesn't matter. The All the TIFF volunteers kept saying Boy Meets World by accident. <laughs> like the show. Yeah. I love that. And then we were like, but it's asking for it. It's try- It's riding that wave. That's true, yeah. I saw a, a film uh, by, by one of my favorite filmmakers, Shinya Tsukamoto from Japan. <gasps> mm. He made one of my favorite movies of all time called Tetsuo the Iron Man. It's like Ooh. a. It's not about Iron Man, Robert, Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man. Not no. about that. It's about a guy who is becoming, it's in this kind of cyberpunk world. It's black and white. He's becoming metal. Mm. Uh, and it's just, it's really crazy. Sounds um, metal. It's it's very metal, and it feels very influential. And it's one of those movies. This is so cheesy to say, but like, um, you know, people compare stuff to like Cronenberg a lot or Lynch a lot. Like, yeah. it kind of it has that surreal feeling and also that like body horror feeling. So I feel like those comparisons are very apt here, and it feels like a very influential movie for almost all '90s music videos. To me <laughs> when you watch it, I've seen stills of of that movie, and like. I'm afraid to watch it. Oh, I'd, I'd watch it with you any day, Nick. Okay. Like, I'll, you, I'll bring over the Blu-ray. Okay. I, I, I saw it on TV and I bought the box set. I was like, this guy oh, is amazing. We'll do a pod about it. We'll do a pod. <laughs> um, so he's made a new film called Shadow of Fire. Okay. Uh, and it is, if I told you it was by the same director, um, you would have no visual or uh, any sort of like narrative comparison to be like, Oh yeah, this is a movie by the same guy, which I kind of love, right? Like he's, he's now, you know, quite a bit older. He's operating on a very different wavelength. And Mm. I think what's interesting to him nowadays is this idea of war. So it was another war film. I saw this time. It was post-war Japan, post-world war two. Um, it's in a small village. It's kind of, it feels a little bit like a COVID movie in the sense that most of it is this kind of chamber drama of like one, room you know where it's this abandoned i think it's a ramen restaurant um Uh and there's um a woman in there who is uh soliciting sex she's a sex worker uh there's a soldier that um kind of stops in periodically and sort of has a relationship with her but ends up uh being quite abusive and there's also a little boy and the boy uh, has been orphaned by the war and he kind of hangs out in this little house just to kind of survive and it's this sort of found family movie initially um and uh eventually kind of as the film progresses 
uh, the woman there gets sick and sort of pushes the kid out. He has nowhere to go, and he ends up um, sort of helping this guy out who has a bit of a vendetta against another guy. Like, he's trying to kill this man that uh, has wronged him, and he's using the boy to kind of help him get there. Mm. Uh, And so um, then the movie kind of expands outward a little bit, um, it was, you know, the subject is very interesting. The performances are riveting. I can't say that I was like really too shaken up by it. It just has a little bit, there was something that was a little bit impenetrable, impenetrable to me, um, emotionally. Sure. Um, but he, uh, Sukumoto was there, spoke about the film. It's coming from a very, very real place where, you know, he, he described, um, how in his old, era of filmmaking that um like his previous movies his earlier films he was really driven by this idea of what's real and what's not and how uh, violence erupts when there's confusion between the two and now he's very compelled by this idea of war i think he feels that there's a, an imminent war coming and i think that he is offering this film as somewhat of a, of a prayer uh and um you know so there's a real kind of solemn element to this film yeah um but i haven't seen much late sukamoto much of his, his more recent movies he's made a couple films about war one was called killing that came out which i think is more about samurais in 2018 okay i think there's another one called i want to say fire on the plane and this is maybe a loose trilogy hmm. um so uh i would say it's it's uh it's it's pretty effective but it's just not something that really struck a a huge personal nerve. Um, but I think that, you know, he's a master and I think it's, it's great to see what he's doing now and what is compelling him now. It's always cool to see, uh, someone really change it up. Yeah. Yeah. Especially I, I find, you know, part of the beauty of cinema is you develop a relationship with a director and any movie in that director's filmography carries that much more significance because you are comparing it actively to stuff they've done in the past. And when a director puts something out there that is so different from their past and you see this new dimension to their personality, mm, chef's kiss. Uh, There are some spoilers here I got for you, though. Uh, One, this is tragic, is that all three main characters die. Uh, which, you know, big spoiler, but, you know, you're listening to no spoilers, so Mm. you got to expect that. Exclamation point. Uh, The other one is that, uh, and this could be real or not, the film has a brief scene that is shot with infrared cameras like the Zone of Interest. Wow, it's the year of infrared. Which is interesting, and Agrodrift, right? Yeah. But it has that similar sort of shift to kind of an infrared look, um, and that was pretty surprising to me. Um, I don't know what kind of release Shadow of Fire is going to get in North America, but I do think it's worth watching um, if you get the opportunity. I'm going to head over to the Pigeon Tunnel now i have no idea what this is this is an errol morris classic sort of portrait documentary movie uh i don't know if you've seen uh the fog of war the unknown known um there are known knowns there are known unknowns and there are unknown knowns that's exactly. the rumsfeld one yes my my errol morris uh I, I honestly, I feel like I know his work really well, but I also feel like I've barely seen any of it, which is really? weird. I know his uh, Interatron way of, of filming. Yes. And he's done, I know he did like a Steve Bannon movie, he did uh, The Fog of War. For, for the listener, the Interatron is a system that he invented wherein the subject is looking directly into the camera to answer the questions, and it creates that extra level of intimacy between the subject and the audience. That's it. Yeah. Well put. Thank you. Um, I, had, I forgot that he had a new film coming uh, yeah. to, uh, this year. It was year, a little so. under the radar. What was this one about? Uh, so his subject this time is John Le Carré. That's amazing. Yes. And 
John Le Carré turns out is an amazing interview subject because he's been giving interviews most of his life, and he's a an amazing writer. Right. Uh, and he's been like thinking about his life and articulating his life for most of his life. So, he, but he also is dead, right? Didn't he die in in the last couple years? He died, but they filmed it before that. Oh, thank God! <laughs> I was gonna say, I don't know how he, how he's getting <laughs> this stuff interview. post. Yeah, post mortem. You know, uh, amazing. Um, That's but, great that he captured him though in the late stages of his life. Yes, like he, so he's really good at talking about his life. Like he has the full perspective of it, and he has a ton of insight about his relationship with his dad. Um, who was a bit of a trickster and a bit of a maybe sociopath a little bit. Um, and uh, he's a very charming man. He just has such such certainty about big questions, um, like, you know, whether people have innate characteristics or souls or we're all just kind of playing characters. They we're get existential, it sounds yeah. like. Oh, wow, I love this. And the, the Pigeon Tunnel is this sort of a uh, haunting image that he's always carried with him of, uh, you know, these these uh, upper-class British people will go and shoot pigeons that are released through a tunnel, and then the pigeons always fly back around. The ones who survive always fly back around to the same place, the same starting point, because there's food there, and the pigeons are none the wiser. They just go right back into the fold, ready to be potentially murdered again. So it's it's something that's always kind of uh, scared him a little bit. Interesting. Also sounds um, like a big metaphor, too, for something. Totally. <laughs> uh, and, you know, if, if you like Errol Morris, you're just gonna like like it's, mm. it's classic Errol Morris it's beautifully shot everything is so well integrated perfect you know like it, you get the sense that this was sculpted from many many hours of interviews and we're only seeing the absolute cream of the crop this was probably my second favorite movie wow of the yeah. wow I, I had no idea it had such an impact that's amazing I really I really went for it and um you know, shout out to Errol Morris. Like, he's so prolific. He'll just generate these awesome movies. I have also probably only seen about half of his output, mm -hmm. but everything I've seen from him is just awesome. Couple spoilers to drop. John Le Carre reads his will to Errol Morris at the end of the movie. Interesting. John Le Carre dies off camera. Okay. Try to figure out which of those. <laughs> which of these is true? Well, if that one's incorrect, that would imply that he dies on camera. That's right. Which there's would be only a, one alternative. A shocking ending. He to reads this film. his will and then he dies instantly. I wonder if there's a documentary where the subject at the end dies on camera. That would be wow. We got to figure <laughs> that out. We got to do some research. <laughs> Forgive me, I don't. I'm not good at French. Uh, but Mademoiselle Canopsica, I believe, is the name of the movie. Sure. This is in the Wavelengths program, which, if you're not too familiar with TIFF, is the more kind of experimental out there, like the weird ones, you mm, know? Mm. Uh, this one I found a little bit, honestly, more more of a way in than I would have anticipated with a film program in Wavelengths and a film by Denis Cote, who I've only seen one other movie by. So this one is, a, is definitely more, is less interested in narrative and more kind of about vibes. Mm. Uh, I think what's really uh, interesting him here is the idea of... Um, liminal spaces the spaces in between the spaces that we spend most of our time in mm. corridors 
um, you know, corners of rooms. Uh Um, It's uh, about a character who is in uh, this abandoned building. Okay. uh, And it's not clear what the building is. It could be, it kind of looks a little bit like a rundown hospital or school or church. It kind of looks like all of those things combined. My guess is that it was shot in multiple uh, locations and kind of presented as one. Sure. And there's a woman sort of spending her time in there and kind of like waiting from room to room. And, uh, she's taking, uh, phone calls from sort of a, a mysterious, uh, um, caller. And, uh, at one point a woman shows up to kind of talk to her about liminal spaces. Uh, and this is my kind of one like issue with the movie is that because it's, I mean, the first 15 minutes of it are just essentially shots of rooms, static shots of rooms. Sometimes you might get a small zoom somewhere, mm. you know, it's that kind of movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, at first, like, all right, I wonder if more is going to kind of kick in here. And it did. And, but then it became very literal. It became what it was, uh, on its face about, you know, and you hear on a radio, like someone talking about liminal space there's actually very little room to kind of interpret after the fact because the movie becomes very clear sort of what it's interested in and what it's doing. Um, but I actually, I had a pretty good time with it, surprisingly. Uh, I'm going to give you some spoilers about it. Please. The One of the rooms, this was shocking, uh, contains a portal. <gasps> like from like, the game? Like like from the game. There's a portal. Yeah, it's like the game portal. Is it the blue one or the orange one? I can't. I don't want to spoil that. Okay. That's going too far. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the other thing that surprised me was that there is a quite a bit of French EDM in the movie, electronic huh. dance music. Huh. So, you know, you're watching this very uh, arty, quiet, static movie, but sometimes you'll get a little tss, tss, tss kind of thing going, you know, a little wow. bit of a, an EDM beat. A surprise entry into the festival. It's Ava DuVernay's origin. This was last minute. They yes. were like, come on in, Ava. And I managed to snag a couple of free tickets because people weren't ready for this movie to to hit the festival. So I think they had a few open seats. Oh, nice. That's um, so sick. And free I'm, tickets. I I'm, love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled that I got in uh, because this was another highlight of the fest for me. Mm-hmm. It's an adaptation of Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, which is an anti-racism, or should I say anti-caste, nonfiction novel about the origins of slavery, um, you know, injustice throughout the world, et cetera, et cetera. And the theory uh, revolves around, you know, this idea that what manifests as racism in America has actually been going on throughout history uh, in the form of caste systems where there is sort of an arbitrary ranking of different groups of people, and then the laws and culture work to enforce that ranking and, and keep it all in place so that the people who aren't at the very bottom can benefit uh, and just sort of have better lives at the expense of all the people who are at the bottom. To give the movie a bit of a narrative, Ava DuVernay ties the theory into the life of the novel's author, Isabel Wilkerson, and it's a movie about a book and it's about sort of the writing of the book and and the research involved and and how Isabel Wilkerson found her way to this theory. I'm going to say that, you know, every so often there is a movie at TIFF where I sort of have to use my clothing as Kleenex. Uh, (laughs) The one that I always go back to is Room. It just messed up my sweater. You know, it was never the same afterwards. You got to go to the cleaners after you see a a movie at TIFF sometimes. And this this was that movie this year. I was really moved. Um, This is like some tough stuff to Mm. sit through. And, you know, I think Ava DuVernay can be a little cheesy as a storyteller, a little overwrought. And 
that definitely happens throughout this movie. But I also think that the content of this movie is so huge and overwhelming that that kind of sensibility kind of fits in with, you know, what is being talked about. There's been some criticism about this movie not being cinematic enough. I think it's actually very cinematic. There's a lot of astounding imagery and music and, you know, weaving stuff together, but it's also super direct about presenting these theories from a nonfiction book. And I think the objective of this movie is such that it needs to exist in a really obvious, clear way to disseminate these ideas without ambiguity, uh, because they're just too important to, you know, layer into some nuanced narrative, um, where, Maybe they'll be lost or misinterpreted. I think another movie can go and do that if it wants to, but this movie needs to exist on its own terms as a like, hey, check this out. Here's an idea uh, that can maybe help us to uh, undo these systems. You know, we're never going to get away from these these systems of oppression without uh, identifying them. It's not perfect, uh, it doesn't need to be. It's just, it's, it's a great adaptation of an idea. Here are some spoilers. Here we go. The climactic final passage of the movie involves Isabel Wilkerson writing down the central thesis of the book in point form on a whiteboard. Okay, I, I could see that happening. You could see that. I was describing how direct the movie is. <laughs> Here we go with number two. The climactic final passage of the movie involves Ava DuVernay delivering a direct address monologue summarizing the thesis of the book. God, I, I would normally go, oh, that's, uh, no, no way, but I actually don't know. They're I feel like this could... plausible. They're both plausible here. Would you say this was the most you were moved by a movie at the festival this year? It, it depends. I mean, how can we really measure that? If it's mm. in uh, Leaders of Tears, then yeah. yes. Okay. Uh, if it's in like my physical reaction to it, then yes. Okay. Uh, I could not keep it together. Gotcha. But, uh, I also think zone touches on something like so haunting and like, you know, uh, also a huge part of like injustice in society. And, uh, you know, there, I think there's a lot of, I, I laughed super hard at Dream Scenario, right? You know, which I right. How do you measure how moved you are? But <laughs> yeah. maybe the most sort of um, like weepy that you got. It sounds like the was, weepiest. Was yes, okay. I would give this the weepy award. Richard Linklater's Hitman. Hitman. Uh, Linklater's back in a breezy comedy. <laughs> Glenn Powell is this nerdy philosophy teacher who also does some police work on the side, and he gets thrust into the role of an undercover fake hitman, and he's really good at it. Um, he just has this innate ability to become these fake hitmen. It's a lot of fun. It's kind of like the saint where he's just <laughs> playing all these different characters with like wigs and mustaches and things. Um, and it gives him this sort of newfound confidence. And like suddenly he's this like sexy character. Wait, Glenn Powell becomes sexy. See this. Is that possible? This is the problem with this movie. <laughs> Glenn Powell is already one of the hottest people in the world. Mm -hmm. So... This little journey he goes on is meaningless because, like, just imagine anyone playing this part 
uh, who isn't Glenn Powell. Imagine someone, dare I say it, who isn't conventionally attractive. Imagine, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to throw shade. I'm just talking about, mm. like, the zeitgeist and what people think is hot. Yeah. But imagine Michael Sarah playing this part. Imagine right. Nathan Fielder playing. Imagine Tim Robinson right. donning <laughs> the metaphorical cap that is this role of someone who is perceived as not sexy, and then they find their power and they become sexy. Mm-hmm. Every part of this movie would be better if it wasn't Glenn Powell. And... I felt a little crazy watching this movie because everyone went crazy for this movie. Mm-hmm. In my crowd, people were hooting and hollering and laughing and applauding. And I love Richard Linklater. Uh, and I like I can sort of under I can understand the appeal of this movie. I just think it's almost delivered like this bad sitcom where it's like these people are pretending that the sexy guy isn't sexy and then he becomes slightly sexier and it doesn't really matter. And like the jokes are just sort of eye rolly in their delivery. And, um, it's not shot in a particularly imaginative way. And people adored this movie. People were laughing. I was in the sort of weird zone of like, I guess that qualifies as humor, but it's not really doing it for me i have a theory about that by the way oh i feel like when when you go to a film festival that uh something called festival brain will kick in and it's happened to me before it happens to the best of us yeah but what happens is that movies get really bolstered by the audience right yes. like there's just this feeling in the air people get excited about seeing this new thing together. we want it to succeed we want it to succeed and we're a very generous crowd in toronto which i think is great you know but sometimes you'll see a movie for you like hitman where you're like this isn't landing for me at all but people are going nuts around me and i think that's festival brain i'm not saying i haven't seen hitman so i'm not saying which way or the other like if it's if it is funny or not but i've definitely seen movies get so amped up in their in how they're shown here and the audiences that that people kind of feed on that energy and it's not always the most honest energy to the movie. I, I I think you might be onto something, Ben. I don't want to like, you know, tell people how they really feel or anything. Like I'm sure there were a lot of people there who legitimately loved this movie. You didn't, you didn't stand up and start yelling, stop lying. (laughs) This is a lie. I would never, I would never. I'm happy that people liked this. Yeah. Uh, it just really didn't land for me, um, mainly for the casting, but I think also the directing just overall was very bland. I wish it well, but uh, <laughs> for me, this really didn't hit. When you saw it, it didn't have distribution. And no, now it's a Netflix movie. It's I a think. Netflix movie, which, uh, yeah, I don't know how many people are going to see it, but yeah. I guess I guess we'll find out. Big spoilers. Okay, now I have to warn you, these are one of those spoilers where like, if either one is true, I've kind of spoiled it no matter what. Okay. So, are you okay with this? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go like this. Okay. Okay. Here and then go. just give me a thumbs up when you're ready. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Glenn Powell ultimately does carry out a contract on a very deserving target. That's number one. Number two, Glenn Powell kills a relatively innocent person. Amazing. Okay. I didn't hear either of those. Okay. Robot Dreams. This was an animated, very cute movie. It's in a cute little world filled with cute animals and cute <laughs> robots, and this cute dog buys a cute robot. And they Wait, become... the dog buys a robot? Yeah, he sees an infomercial, and he's feeling a little lonely in his life. And is he he's... anthropomorphic? Like, does he walk around like a person? Yes, yes. Oh, okay. so, so this is this is a classic animated so how world. How does a dog where... buy anything? <laughs> I should I should have framed this a bit better. This is one of those classic animated worlds where everyone's walking around on two feet and, you know, everyone has a human personality. 
Gotcha. So the dog sees an infomercial, he buys a robot. They become friends or possibly lovers. It's a little oh. unclear, like, what level of intimacy this relationship is at. They're sort of holding hands in this very suggestive way. And, like, there's no separate sleep. Like, I think they might be sleeping sleep in, in a the bed same together? bed. Yeah. I, what is this movie? I, do, I, this I sounds don't insane. No, I don't know, Ben. They go to the beach. Uh-huh. And, like, the robot's gears get fucked up somehow by going to the beach. Sort of like the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz. He gets, like, frozen because he's out at the beach too long. Interesting. Yeah. And <laughs> so the robot kind of gets stuck at the beach, and the dog can't go back to the beach because the summer's over, and there's this gate, and <laughs> he can't break in. So he, the dog kind of goes and lives his own life. It's kind of episodic, and he's always longing for the robot to return, but the robot's just kind of stuck there. And the robot dreams about leaving the beach. So he's just stuck on the beach. He's dreaming about leaving. They essentially do like one thing together and the <laughs> robot gets stuck. Like it's a very poorly built, despite the fact, yeah. I mean, listen, this robot is almost like a person. It's kind of wild mm. how sentient it is, but it completely falls apart mechanically at the very first thing that it does. <laughs> it so very well built. No, and you like, there's no warning in the manual. Like, don't go to the beach with this thing. It's not sandproof or waterproof. Like, they're just they're, yeah. Anyways, maybe it's defective. I don't know. So they they hook up once, and then yeah. the robot gets dumped on the beach and, and the, can't leave. Yeah. So pretty much the whole movie is now they're separated, and they both sort of long to come back together, but they maybe they do, maybe they don't. I'm not going to tell you. Okay, gotcha. It's. <laughs> The, it's a really long movie for what it is. It's an hour and 40 minutes. Mm. And I would say it kind of feels almost longer than that because there's so many extended moments where a character will sort of quietly take in whatever has just happened and then smile to let you know that they're happy about what just <laughs> happened. And I genuinely think if you cut all of those moments out of this movie, it would probably be an hour 20, an hour 15, and it would feel so much leaner and tighter and better. <laughs> Uh, but for some reason, we just needed to see them take stuff in and smile and wink. And lots like, of smiling pauses. It lots of just like. pause, smile. Yeah. Something happens. Pause, smile. Buffer that thing out 20 minutes just with that. Maybe one or two of those and we're good. Um, <laughs> I also felt like from the sort of Q&A afterwards that the movie doesn't really want me to have any questions about the nature of this relationship. But inevitably, I do because... The robot is programmed to love. You buy this robot, it loves you. It's a, it's sort of a transactional relationship on, on one level. And so, of course, there is this sort of question of like, well, is this real? Is this actually a satisfying relationship? Uh, is this what you really want in your life? Some Someone that you essentially pay to be your friend? And the movie doesn't, it's not concerned with that. The movie considers this to be just as valid a relationship as any other. And then there's, you know, the looming question of, like, is this sexual? Is it friendship? Like, I don't think the movie does a very good job really defining that. I think all the extended shots of them, like, holding hands are just, like, weirdly suggestive. Mm. Maybe I'm being... I'm just thinking about this way too hard. <laughs> and it's just a cute movie that kids are really going to enjoy. I think most of my audience really just 
enjoyed this so movie. So it fe- feels kind of catered to kids, it sounds like. I think despite... it's supposed... Well, this is the thing. Like, I think it's supposed to be for kids because of this, the animation style. Yeah. Um, I think the original graphic novel it was based on is probably for kids. But it's also, like, really long. And these themes of lost love and, you know, how do you move on with your life, they're very mature. And I don't think kids really have a framework to consider these themes in, in a serious manner. So I, I was a little puzzled by this movie. And I wanted to just have a breezy time and feel pleasant about it. But I, I just left kind of scratching my head a bit. I think the aesthetic of it is really lovely. Uh, it's very, like, easy to look at. Um, it's very simple, although I would also say it kind of works against the content because if the world was presented in a more detailed manner, I think it would be easier to sit through the length of the movie because you'd have more stuff to look at. It was more like where's Waldo as opposed to, you know, leaning closer to like, um, a kid's drawing. Mm -hmm. I think it would be a better movie. Uh, but, uh, you know, maybe I'm judging it too harshly. I don't know. It feels almost like when Ebert saw cars and he was like, how do these cars have sex? (laughs) Like, I wouldn't say Ebert was overthinking it. Like, these are questions that he naturally had. So I feel like you're kind of questioning, like, what's the nature of this relationship in this world? Like, I think that's totally valid. When I saw cars, I was like, what happened to the people? Right. Yeah. Very valid question. Yeah. Are these cars our enemy? Here are some spoilers. The robots are so cute that society fails to realize they've taken control of everything and we already live in a dystopia. Okay? Mm. That's number one. Number two, the dog buys an additional robot. Hmm. That would throw a wrench into things. It's true, because then what what about the first robot? Exactly. That we care about still. Yeah. Up next, fingernails. I Uh, got them. You got them. Yeah. We've all got them. It's a relatable title. (laughs) Christos Niku. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He's a disciple of Yorgos Lanthimos. Um, and he made this movie about a world where people can take a test to determine whether they are truly in love. No more ambiguity. You just have to lose a fingernail in the process. And guess what? Luke Wilson invented the test. Oh, no way. Right? That's what he's been up to. Yeah. Uh, it's a very quiet uh, Luke Wilson performance. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's he tends to be a bit of a muted performer to some extent, but he really goes for it this time. When you say lose a fingernail, are they like severing the whole nail off your finger? Like, are they just like they're not severing? They're off? they're pulling. They're pulling the it's, fingernail it's off. Deeply difficult to to sit through yeah. every time they do it, and they do it quite a few times. Really? Yeah, they're like doing what they did to Clooney and Siriana. Essentially, it's they like rip his fingernail. It's off. torture. They That's they awful. say that like it only hurts for a second, but I don't believe it. That um, sounds brutal. Yeah. So Jesse Buckley and Riz Ahmed uh, are working at this institute where they perform the test. They also take couples through various exercises to maybe help them cross the line over into love before they take it. Um, I think it's an interesting premise. I think Christos is sort of trying to present this idea in a very subdued uh, sort of um, straight man energy. And by straight man, I mean straight man versus funny man, not heterosexual man. Um, But the tone is like, it's just so insistently muted that I felt like it was almost getting in the way of what this world might truly feel like at times. Um, It it does kind of really want to be the lobster uh, on, on some level, I think. And... 
the premise of this test that tells you if you're actually in love or not gets kind of murkier and murkier towards the end. The ending just muddies the water a lot. I don't think anything really holds up overall. I think it's a very watchable movie that is sort of carried um, by an intriguing idea um, that, you know, you're not going to see in any other movie uh, some... uh, interesting performances and a lot of Toronto scenery. Oh, they uh, shot it here. Yeah. A lot of Toronto people. Um, but, uh, for me, it unfortunately just didn't quite come together. I think, uh, you know, if you're really into the lobster, the Yorgos Lanthimos vibe, etc., you know, it's maybe worth a watch. I don't think it's going to blow your mind. Um, but it's a relatively original movie. Big spoilers. Here we go. Number one. In the end, Riz Ahmed loves Jesse Buckley, but she doesn't love him back. Ooh. Okay. Number two. In the end, it turns out Riz Ahmed is actually in love with Luke Wilson, and Jesse Buckley has to move on with her life without love. I'd, I'd, I'd love to see either of those happen. I think both movie. of those are pretty satisfying. Yeah. I'm proud of myself for writing the You could have written the movie, I feel like, and it may, it probably would have been better, it sounds like. You know? <laughs> I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say it, Nick. Okay. Because this sounds kind of like Yorgos Jr., you know? And it's like, I don't know, it's... I lost a little bit of trust in Yorgos after a few movies. Lanthimos like, Light. Lanthimos Light, you know? Yeah. And so, but apparently his new one, which that's a different topic. Ooh, I really wish it had come I different. know, you know they wanted it so oh. bad. They wanted that movie so bad. But and anyway. then they didn't get it, and they were like, now I really know the meaning of poor things exactly they're talking about us us <laughs> up next the holdovers i'm excited about this one alexander payne is back after downsizing which was sort of this huge concept movie with i think maybe not the best execution uh here he's making a movie with the simplest possible concept and a pretty straightforward execution and i think he does a very good job um, it's about Paul Giamatti. He's an instructor at a prep school. He's very married to his work. He's a workaholic. He lives on campus. And he uh, has to take care of students who can't go home for Christmas. So him and the head chef at the cafeteria become these sort of parental figures to this very chaotic and rebellious young student played by first-timer Dominic Sessa. Um Paul Giamatti is just great here. I think he's uh, playing a character who is really rigid and charmless, and somehow he honors that while making him extremely fun to watch. I don't really know how he does it, but he pulls it off. That is a balancing act. He has a very satisfying arc. I think if I'm going to watch an Alexander Payne movie, I would probably go to Election and Sideways before this. Uh, if I'm looking for that Giamatti fix or that, um, you know, weird student-teacher relationship. Um, but within its unambitious framework, you know, I don't think this movie's doing anything mind-blowing. I think it's pretty flawless. Like, there's there's not a whole lot that I can really say is, like, not good or not satisfying about this movie. I just don't think that it's aiming very high. That you feel like pain is probably is it's more capable maybe of delivering something kind of richer. It I, sounds like I feel like it's a bit of a response to his last movie, which was like just so wild and off the beaten path. Yeah. And now he's like, okay, that didn't really work. Let's go back to my roots. Let's do more of a sort of character study, a comedy, and uh, let's let that play out. And you know, he's very good at that. That's mm-hmm. that's what he does. 
Uh, I don't think that it's the uh, best example of what he does. Like, I, I do think he's he's done it better in other movies. But uh, if if this is your jam, if you love this movie, like, you're, you're not wrong. Mm. Like, it's it's very good. I always feel like with pain, my favorite pain movies, and some of my favorite pain movies are some of my favorite movies, period. Like, I think Sideways is basically a perfect movie. Mm. I love about Schmidt, too. And what I love about those movies is that he will kind of, he will take those characters and drag them down to kind of the depths and mm. end the movie on like a glimmer almost like it's never like completely an upbeat ending, but it's a glimmer of an ending. And I, he, he's handled that so well in the past. And so I always kind of hope that he kind of gets there with every movie that he, that he makes without spoiling anything. I think you will be nice. Yeah. <laughs> Now, with spoiling things. I'm covering and ears because I'm excited about this. But it also seems like a movie where it's like hard to spoil almost. I, I've tried to be a little bit lighter with this one, with with the fake spoilers. If you, if you want to be super safe, you can cover your ears. Okay, I trust but, you. Okay, okay, so check this out. <laughs> Either Paul Giamatti starts a fire that grows out of control, mm-hmm. or Paul Giamatti allows his students to cheat a little bit on their final exams. Ooh, okay. Yeah. I could see him doing both. I think these are good, light, mm-hmm. uh, plausible spoilers. Just the right amount of spoilers, Thank potential you. spoilers. Thank I love you. it. Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron, oh. which I did not have a ticket for until the last minute, and I used that TIFF Tickets Reddit, man. It's great. I, I couldn't get into this movie. There were so many screenings, and I just, I, I was hoping a little bit that it would win People's Choice so that yeah, I could squeeze in there at the like end. Yeah, it won, like, second runner-up, yeah, I think. I can't was, remember what first runner-up was. Uh, I don't it remember. Was, it was actually was it um, The Holdovers. Me? It was The Holdovers. Yeah. That's what it was. So yeah. that did that play really well with your audience? It did. Okay. I think people generally really went for it. So The Boy and the Heron is Hayao Miyazaki's new movie. You've probably heard about it because it, it was the gala you know, opening film. And it's also a, a movie that um, I think people weren't anticipating happening. I mean, I remember when The Wind Rises came out in 2013, I think. Also played the festival. Um, and the whole narrative around The Wind Rises was, this is it. Uh, Miyazaki is retiring. This is his last sort of gift to the world. Uh, and we're going to take it at that level. And so almost anything you read about The Wind Rises is like, goodbye, Hayao Miyazaki. <laughs> and that's what um, The Boy and the Heron was presented to us as as well, where it's like, this is it. It's 10 years later. He's an even older man. Yeah. This is a gift to the world and a gift to his grandson. Right. Uh, it was called How Do You Live before they changed the title in North America. Huh. I would argue that neither title really suits the movie. But what would you who call cares? It? That's a great question. Um, uh, I need a minute. I need sure. a minute. I'll get sure. back to you on that okay. one. But um, it's, uh, it's a hard movie to classify. It's part of the reason that I have a hard time titling it myself. Um, it is... Um, uh, a film based on an, on a book. I think the book is called How Do You Live as well. Okay. Um, and it's another sort of post-war Japan movie where there's a, a boy named uh, Mahito. Um, the movie mm. begins with um, his mother ostensibly dying in a fire. It's pretty heavy. Um, and his father moves him into the house of a new woman that he is interested in and there may be some sort of relation to later on. Um, and um, the boy's living in this new house um, and there's a heron there and the heron, he shows up and he's, he's looking at the boy. The boy's kind of bothered by the heron. He's a little bit of a nuisance. And then the heron sort of beckons him into this other world almost. And it's kind of like, it's not really a world of the dead, but it's kind of, it feels almost a little bit like that. Like there's a very sort of surreal, um, 
kind of magical undertone to this place. And he's going there uh, not only to uh, rescue his new stepmother, who's kind of wandered into this place, but also to uh, potentially find his his dead mother there, who the Heron is insisting is somewhere here. So... Um, so he kind of goes from one sort of magical set piece to another. There's parakeets that are trying to kill him. Um, there are there's kind of like this pirate friend that he makes, and she's kind of a fun sort of adventurer type. Um, I honestly, the movie shifts so much scene to scene that I would have a hard time relaying to you the plot of the movie beat by beat. Sure. Uh, it's a little I, abstract. It is a little abstract. Yeah. And I, and I, it's also quite dense, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a bit of self harm in the movie, which mm. is pretty bloody. It's, it's, it's kind of hard to tell. Um, you know, it does not feel like it's compromising anything for young children. Like this isn't Ponyo. Mm. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's pretty heavy in a lot of spots. Um, but it is, you know, for me personally, Miyazaki, was a director who I didn't connect with for a really long time, despite recognizing his work as beautiful, yeah. if that makes sense. Sure. I just, you know, I never really fully connected with it yeah. uh, until I saw The Wind Rises, which was his last film. Right. And so at the time, and now he's made this not this next one. And, you know, you can see here that there's stuff in the film about legacy and about familial legacy and what it means to uh, kind of carry that forward as someone, you know, um, younger in a generation or a lineage. Mm. Um, you know, there's, uh, some wacky heron antics. Ooh. Um, there's also depictions of like space as well, <gasps> which is rare for Miyazaki. As far as oh. I can tell, I don't think he goes to space that often, but you get a little bit of space imagery here. Huge. Um, the movie's very dense and rich and layered, and I think is going to really appeal to people that love his work. And for me, I was um, very moved and impressed by it. Mm. It's I wouldn't say that it is a great place to start if you're like really diving into Miyazaki, nor would I say that this is going to convert you uh, if, you know, something like Howl's Moving Castle or Spirited Away uh, wasn't really your thing. But it's most people's thing. And there's, I think, a reason that it's, you know, was close to winning people's choice. Mm. It's gorgeous. Um, it's, uh, going to come out in December. I think everybody should see it in a theater. I think it's getting an IMAX release as well, but I saw it just in a standard theater. Okay. Um, incredible score, um, you know, beautiful soundscape. Uh, so yes, I very much enjoyed the boy and the heron. As far as spoilers for the boy and the heron go, you might be surprised to find out that the heron has a man in it. There's a man in the heron and he looks a little like Wario. Or Danny DeVito, some people have said, uh, because this is a very real spoiler where, you know, is the heron... Actually, it's kind of hard to determine. Is the heron a man or is there a man in the heron? Is, is the he man Mark a Marin? part of the heron? Is, is Mark Marin the heron? <laughs> you'll you'll find out. Uh, and also, uh, the film ends with a the end title card and then a question mark fades in. Is there, after the credits, does it say the boy and the heron will return? That's that's what I think it's implying by the the end. And right. part of this has to do with the fact that, um, you know, Miyazaki wasn't flying here for this movie, but someone from Studio Ghibli did mm. and said, Hayo's coming in every week with new ideas because everybody was talking about this movie like, oh, this is the end. Like, we're doing it again, you know. And, and did he say that in the intro? 
uh, I think it was done on the red carpet for the movie. That's I think so he walked funny. the red carpet and was asked about it, and he's like, it, "This is not it." Like he's coming up with more ideas now. I mean, if if he's gonna live to complete it, I hope so. Dicks, the musical. Oh yeah. <laughs> This is based on a two-man show by its stars, Josh Sharp and Aaron Jackson. This is also their big screen debut. Um, (laughs) It's a musical about two toxic, heterosexual men, bravely played by two gay men, as the opening titles point out. (laughs) Uh, And they're trying to trick their long-estranged parents, played by Nathan Lane and Megan Mullally, into getting back together by switching places. They're pulling a parent trap on them. It's a very funny movie. I was just swept up by it. Uh, it has that sort of dumb, like, Stella humor where it's like, this is so stupid. And, like, they know it. And they're just, like, leaning hard into it. Uh, and that's, I don't know, that can just be, like, fun and refreshing to see a movie, like, not care about that stuff. Um, I'm not convinced that this movie means anything. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe it doesn't have to. Maybe it doesn't have to. Yeah. It, it's just really funny. Um, there's also the Sewer Boys make their big screen debut. These are some mutant vermin characters who Nathan Lane has to sort of feed uh, through some very disgusting means. You can probably imagine, uh, similar to how birds might uh, feed their young. Maybe, maybe, outside of a theater, if you're watching this alone at home on a tiny screen, maybe it doesn't play as well. But I personally was invigorated by this. I thought it was just like so much fun. I give it. I give it a solid reco. Is um are the sewer boys puppets? What are they? I believe they're puppets. Yes, there's actually you you get quite a lot of insight into the movie's making from the blooper reel at the end because you can see them being puppeteered. You can oh, actually see some core ideas in the movie being like developed on screen, like as they're happening. Like Nathan Lane's whole method for feeding them. I think was improv and it's one of the biggest like moments in the movie. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of wild. So here are a couple spoilers. Number one, the sewer boys are actually future versions of the identical twins. They, they end up becoming the sewer boys. Another big spoiler, the identical twins get married despite massive protests. (laughs) One of those is real. I, I wish it was both. Yeah. I wish it was both. And Larry Charles made this movie, which I was surprised by because he did Borat mm. and, you know, um, he did the Bill Maher documentary Religious. Oh, no. In 2008. <laughs> um, so it's, it was surprised to see and curb your enthusiasm. I was like, oh, man, Larry Charles made this movie. He's an accomplished director. I think he actually um, he makes it feel like a movie with way more money than it has. And there's something very charming about the limited resources of this movie versus how it feels. I love that. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. I think it's a good little model for like, this was a two man show that I had never heard of. And here it is. It's, it's got a friggin' A24 release. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ben, for joining me for our first ever TIFF Full Festival recap. This is such a pleasure. I hope that we do this every festival, you know? We should do a little festival recap, a very special episode. So I'll see you next year, same place, same time. I'll put it in my iCal. (laughs) It's got to be the same day and the same time. Yeah. TIFF 2024, (laughs) here we come. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, spoil on!